Hello, I'm Yolanda Brown and a warm welcome to LPO Offstage. We're back again chatting with the London Philharmonic Orchestra and finding out what happens behind the scenes. Today, we're going to be discussing the music that changed players' lives from unforgettable musical experiences to those aha moments when players realised that this is what they wanted to do. I'm joined today by Coronglay player Sue Burling, cellist Francis Bucknell and violinist Kate Oswin. Welcome back, Sue, and so great to have you here, Francis and Kate. Hello. Hi. Thank you. Hi, Yolanda. Hi. Hello. Now, Francis, can I start with you? I'd love to hear where it all began. Uh, do you remember a musical experience or a piece of music that stopped you in your tracks? I think for me, it was a growing recognition of what this is all about. I would go back to maybe youth orchestras. Mm. I was in the National Youth Orchestra of Wales for three or four years. And that just made such an impression on me of what is possible, what you can do. I mean, of course, it wasn't perfect. It was a youth orchestra. But the sheer excitement and the enjoyment. I won't go into the social side of it because that's another part of it. But I did enjoy that as well. And so pieces of music, the Sibelius II, I remember from that. And uh, pictures at an exhibition, I remember coming off the stage saying, I will always remember this experience Oh, wow. uh, of, of when we did pictures. Kate, tell me, what was that first sort of life-changing musical experience for you? I think I'd have to agree with Francis about youth orchestras on this. I was amazingly fortunate to do my first national youth orchestra with Yannick Nazay-Seguin about a couple of months before he was named principal guest conductor at the LPO. We did so many huge works with him at that course, like um, Ravel La Volts. We did Bartok and Shiro for orchestra. We did La Mer. We did some contemporary music. And we also did the last movement of Ravel Mother Goose Suite with him as an encore. And it was just the most amazing experience. Wow. And Sue, can you remember sort of a very poignant moment in your musical journey? Yeah, it's interesting. I think we all have this in common. I started playing quite late. We had one of those moments at school where uh, the teacher said, who wants to play the clarinet? And of course, everyone shot their hands up and said, oh, yes, me, you know, what's one of those? And I think the teacher turned up to the class and tried to test us out. And I tried to get a noise out of this mouthpiece and <laughs> I got absolutely nothing. And he just looked at me and said, hmm, maybe you should be better as an oboist. And I, I genuinely didn't know what an oboe was. <laughs> I've really come from sort of nowhere in the musical world. And it just took off. I just sort of got on with it quite quickly, even though I started quite late. Um, back in those days, our local authorities were just fantastic. And we had Tuesday night wind band, Wednesday night jazz band. Mm. We had Saturday morning orchestra. And so it was my first time in the youth orchestra. It's the same. And just sitting there surrounded by friends and the social side was fantastic, but there was a discipline to it as well. Mm. And it is, it's life changing. And I think I probably could easily have gone off the rails if I hadn't had something like that to keep me going. (laughs) So I fell into it all completely, but it was just sort of this amazing new scene that just I got absorbed by. And Vorjak 8 was my first symphony orchestra piece that I played first oboe in, which was just fantastic, really. What sort of age would you have been then? I was late. I was about 15 when I started. So at school, you know, we had peripatetic system and teachers turned up um, every week. It just happened. It was part of the routine. Amazing opportunities that we had back then. Really incredible. 
So encouraging, actually. My uh, daughter is seven and she's just had that experience. A teacher came and said, who would like to play the cello? So hands shot up. She's yeah. had two lessons and oh, wow. um, she came home. And she says, I just felt it in my heart. And I was like, I need, oh, I need to write that down. That might be <laughs> that might be the moment, you know. Oh. So it's interesting hearing that. Yeah, the cello, I mean, because it's resting against you here, you really do feel it physically. <laughs> Was there a specific piece and a part of a piece where maybe you got those chills or you just thought that is the piece for me? Sue? I didn't get a lot of experience before I found myself at the Royal Academy of Music because I started quite late. But my grandfather was the first person to introduce me to a piece of classical music. His favourite piece of music was the Rodrigo Guitar Concerto. And we were sent to my grandparents on most weekends, probably to give my parents a break. And he played me this piece. And, you know, the irony is it's got one of the biggest cor anglais solos in it. Look at that. And this is what I've ended up doing. So that piece for me resonates because obviously it's been with me in my entire career. And we've recorded it a few times now. And you play it better than anyone, Sue. Oh, oh look at that, yes. That's very kind. I'll buy you a pint later, <laughs> But oh. it was really bizarre, you know, to have been introduced to a piece of music and just the first piece of any classical music I'd ever heard. And it happens to be one that we play a lot. Do you remember how old you were when you first heard it? I was literally sitting on my grandfather's knee. I would have been six or seven. Oh, wow. You know. Lovely. Oh, thank you for sharing that, Sue. And Kate, I'm going to ask you that question as well. A piece of music that really shook you to the core and just sort of gave everything perspective, so to speak. For me, the piece that I was kind of most obsessed with as a kid would have been Scheherazade by Rimsky-Korsakov. I mean, obviously, there are these incredible violin cadenzas that kind of weave their way through the whole piece. Uh, I remember at a family summer school that I used to go to as a kid, my teacher at the time played all the solos and I was just completely in awe of her. What was it that just made you feel in awe of her when she was playing those solos? Well, it's just absolutely incredible music. You know, it kind of starts with this big harp arpeggios and then everything just stops and the violin comes in. And mm. Tell me, Sue, about some of the performance experiences that you've had. And, you know, similar to when we heard Francis say he walked off stage and said, I will never forget that moment. Do you, have you had any moments like that where you just thought that of all the many performances that I do, that really yeah. has stuck with me? We've been around a long time, haven't we, Francis? Oh, We're talking yes. decades. So there's many, many, many experiences. But I have to say one that really, I suppose, always your first job. I was lucky enough to leave college with a job that was incredible. And I found myself doing seven or eight shows a week at the Royal Opera House. And we were playing Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet Ballet. And to sit in the pit at the Royal Opera House, looking up at this extraordinary building and playing that incredible music. That was my welcome into the profession. I think the programme that really hit me was my very first one with the London Philharmonic, genuinely, because I'd been freelancing for years and I was nipping in and out of various London orchestras. Playing tunes is what I do, but I was booked for the first time with the LPO and the job was going. And the programme was the Debussy Nocturnes, the Ravel G Major Piano Concerto and the Rite of Spring. Can you imagine? What a way to Um, get in. Oh, wow. (laughs) So it's not a sort of, hi, guys, just keeping a low profile here. I was sort of right out there in an orchestra that I'd never played with before. And Marius Janssens was conducting, you know, to sit in an orchestra playing the Rite of Spring, the size and the power of that orchestra. It's extraordinary to sit in the middle of that. And that piece for me would be the one 
if you wanted to introduce somebody to an orchestra, come and sit in the middle of the right of spring. It's lovely that you mention Maris Janssen's Sue, because one thing that you might be asking us in due course, Yolanda, is who has mm. influenced you? Yes. And forgive me if I'm moving on, but... No, uh, please do, um, please do. I remember, it may have been then, Sue, it may have been later, but Maris stopped the rehearsal and he said, you know, I shall just take a moment to explain my feeling of why we're here. Mm. We create this physical phenomena of sound waves and somehow... How we create them, how we present them, and this is not verbatim, of course, it conveys an emotion to the audience, and that is why we're here. And then we continue the rehearsal. (laughs) (laughs) Perspective. It is all about perspective, isn't it? Kate, can you remember a musical performance where you just felt, oh, that was a special moment for me? I think probably I'd have to say the first time I did Marla 9 and the last movement of that in particular, this incredible adagio that really hit me that. You're kind of all up on the G string, just absolutely playing your heart out. And you're already like probably a good hour into the symphony at this point, like feeling quite exhausted. And then (laughs) this most incredible half hour adagio finishes it. Ah, that's a lovely, um, lovely description there as well. We spoke a little bit earlier about inspiration. I want to tap back into that. Kate, you led us with your teacher uh, who was playing the solos that you just saw as an inspirational figure. Was there anybody else that's been inspirational along your musical journey? Oh, definitely. Probably the person that had the most impact, I'd have to say, was my violin teacher in Wellington, Yuri Gazantsvi, who's an amazing violinist in the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. Mm. He instilled this kind of critical attention to detail, both in terms of technical playing, but also score preparation, excerpt preparation. And I learned so much from him about doing auditions, playing in an orchestra. And he always kind of pushed me to go for things that maybe I didn't quite have the self-belief to go for myself at the time. So it was his suggestion that I come and audition in the UK and I would never have even crossed my mind to do that had it not been for his support. Wow. Okay, Francis, can you tell me about anybody that's been sort of really important to your musical journey and an inspiration to you? I'm lucky I could list every single teacher that I had from, <laughs> from early lucky. years. Music college, a chap called Derek Avis. Really, he, he sort of allowed me to start to relate technique to musical expression yeah. and sound. So I spent many years with him through music college and it took me a while to leave music college somehow. Music colleges were, were lovely. I don't know if they are now, but I kept going back for, the, for lessons. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, Alexander Bailey continued to get me to play outside a box, mm. if you know what I mean. And then um, Bill Pleath, I was lucky enough to have some lessons with Bill Pleath. And that was really pure music. Yeah. You're leaving the cello and technical things behind and it's all music and ensemble and and so on and then of course in the orchestral world the conductors who influenced how I see music and and how I enjoy music you know Janssen, Bernard Heitink, great orchestral trainers, Mm. fabulous ears, the ability to hear things 
And yet they would adhere to the score. The score was sacrosanct. The composer's wishes are sacrosanct. You, you have to work with that and build your expression on that. And now as a professional musician, Sue, what keeps you motivated and inspiring? And, and inspired. Ooh. You are inspiring <laughs> me, but inspired. <laughs> so, sometimes I must admit, I'm just thinking, oh, this is, I'm tired. And I think, to be honest, you know, when pandemic hit, for me, and it sounds terrible, but I just think, oh, I just need a couple of weeks off. That's yes. great. That's okay. That's cool. Because we'd had a really tough season. We'd been working really hard. We were about to go on tour. And I think really until we stopped, I don't think we realised how tired we were and how hard we'd been working. So a rest is good for me. And it certainly made me realise, you know, how much music means to me, how mm. important it is, how important it is to all the people that live near me yeah. and how much they keep saying, when can we come to one of your concerts? When can we come and hear you play? Mm. So I think it's knowing how much pleasure we're giving to other people has kept me going. We played New World Symphony recently and I must be getting into nearly three figures now performing that piece. But you have to remember there's always somebody out there that's never heard it. You know, my husband and I gave concerts here through our French windows during lockdown and they have never seen a wind play alive. Yes. You know, I can find it really taxing sometimes and there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes and then we have to go to work as well. But just knowing the effect that we have on people mm. and what music means to people and how much they really genuinely have missed it, yeah. I think is what's keeping me going. You're so right. And I guess that is, that's the end product what we're, that we're always working towards to give that joy and that entertainment. And it's showbiz. It's the showbiz, <laughs> yeah. It's, get, it's allowing that for the, for the audience. Yeah, too right. Yeah. Kate, what do you think pushes you through? I mean, this has been an unprecedented year, especially for us as musicians where we're on the go all the time. We're playing and preparing all the time. What kept you going during this past year? Well, I have to say that the last year has actually been really special for me because for the first time, with all of these recorded performances that we've been doing, my parents and my family have been able to watch me play in an wow, orchestra. Yeah. They haven't seen me play in one since I left New Zealand. So obviously the borders are shut and travel's not really possible anymore. So it's been almost three years since I've seen them in person now. Wow. Wow. It's been really special for me every time those cameras start rolling, even though we've got an empty hall there and there's none of that atmosphere in the hall before we start. I know that my mum and my dad are on the other end of that camera and I know how much it's really helped them with feelings of loneliness and isolation, having their Thursday evening New Zealand time date <laughs> with the LPO every week. Oh, if that's not motivation, I don't know what is. Were there any memories that you have of playing a piece of music that was significant because of what you were going through in your life at the time or what was going on in the world at the time that made it even the more special or emotional? I think often a piece can take you away from things in life, bad moments. Mm. It can transport you, particularly with opera at Glyndebourne. That can really transport you to another world. And I think that's the reason why we're there. Yes, do you have any memories, Sue or Kate, of playing a piece of music that just resonated with the time of your life that you were in or uh, what the world was going through at the time? I was lucky enough to be um, recording some of the Harry Potter scores yes. with John Williams conducting. We were at Abbey Road and 9-11 happened. And we were at Abbey Road Studios and it was happening. And we went to the coffee break 
and obviously the big TV screen was on and it was just, and I thought, what's, what's going on? What's this big crowd? And everyone's looked deadly silent. And obviously, you know, the, what was happening, devastating and mm. was being zapped across the news. And we're in the middle of these sessions and I remember just, it was shock. Um, coffee break was over. We had to just go back into the studio and John Williams, bless him, just said, okay, people, we have a job to do. And we just had to carry on. Wow, yep. We had to get this score down. And knowing that all of that was going on, I think that will stick with me forever. Just this is business, job yeah. carries on, you know. The most mm. awful things can happen to you during the day. You can feel absolutely lousy, but you have to go on stage and everything's mm. fine. And does that memory come back when you hear the music again? Yeah, oh, always. Do you that, have that, that, that correlation fixed time. If I was to watch the movie, i go 9-11. It's a terrible memory, but it's powerful. But also... You know, when some of my students go, oh, I'm really tired, I can't do it tonight. You sort of say, the show goes on. And mm. that was the coldest, starkest sort of uh, version of that that I've ever experienced. No, you're right. The show does go on, continues to, <laughs> even through yeah, a pandemic. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> what, first of all, makes an inspirational person, you know, because there are amazing teachers out there that really give so much to their students or sort of just find that link. And then you meet people that had teachers that weren't sort of right for them. So what do you think makes an inspirational and motivational person? There's an energy about people. And if somebody comes into a room with a slightly downward smile or a sort of, down, you know, you're, you're not going to be going, oh, wow, hi, great to meet you. If you walk into a room with a fabulous smile and you're all enthusiastic and energetic, then great. That's a, a sort of a generosity of spirit that you can only bounce off. I'm so conscious, having just done a whole evening of teaching last night to all my core English students at the academy, how can I be inspiring? How can I be that person that they, you know, Does that will go find through inspiring? your mind? Yeah. How can I, wow. you know, give them something to take away? How can I really, yeah, basically just, I just want to give them everything I've got and I don't want to be boring. It, well, I want to make yeah. it interesting. I want to energize them. I want to help keep them motivated because they're looking at a slightly decimated business at the minute. All of those things. So yeah, I give myself quite a hard time to raise the game. Kate, is there anything that you think makes an inspirational teacher? Picking up on what Sue was saying about being that warm presence in the room, I remember so clearly when I was first going into LPO on the scheme, you know, quite nervous. It's the first time I've gone in with an orchestra in the UK before. And there are certain people, and Francis was one of them actually, because he did a lot of the stuff with us, who would just be so welcoming and so friendly and just really make you feel like, you know, you belonged there. As well, Jeff, who's recently retired from the first violence, he would always be the first person to say hello, you know, offer to come and sit with me and just catch up and how you're doing. And that just wow. made such a huge difference, I think. Beautiful. Oh, well, Francis, that's, that's praise enough. I think that's lovely. <laughs> Francis, then, have you seen the next generation? Have you witnessed younger players or pupils having their own transformative experience within music? Well, I've got two kids of my own, very grown up now. But I remember still going back to our youth orchestra system. They both went through Harrow Young Musicians. One concert stands out in particular. I mean, it was a very emotional experience for me as well mm. to, to see my kids in the Albert Hall 
They put on this concert um, relating to Scott of the Antarctic, playing Paul Williams with readings of Scott's diaries. And this completely blew me away. It just, just goes to show that a proper emotional experience can transcend everything. I think it changed my... I asked my Anna just now whether she was in that concert. Oh, yes. Oh, I remember that. Yes. Power to the youth orchestras. If nobody, (laughs) if no one (laughs) believes it now, Mm. you need to keep supporting these young musicians and and the young outfits. That's beautiful. Kate, is there anything that you have seen either going through the scheme yourself or uh, seen fellow musicians just having that transformative moment, that ping? In my previous job at CBSO, I worked with the youth orchestra there from the audition process right through taking sectionals and then playing with them in the concert and just seeing the confidence building and tackling these, you know, Dvorak 7 for the first time, huge pieces Mm. that they're doing. It's really amazing to now be on the other side of that. And Sue, with your students, have you seen that Almost that moment. I mean, it is a moment, isn't it? It, Sometimes it's a transition, but there is always that spark. Can you think of any experiences that you've really just seen it click within a young musician? Yeah, I keep mentioning to them that once you've got through all the technical paraphernalia that goes with playing one of our instruments and the technicalities of the notes and everything that's off, sort of jumping at you off the page. When it comes to the performing, that's the time to let all that go. Mm. All the prep's done, and then you just stand there and you perform. And if everything's right and everything's sort of, all the stars align at the right time, it's like flying. And it doesn't happen nearly enough in our experience, but when it does, oh my, <laughs> that's what it's all about, guys and girls. It's really, it is the most sensational feeling. There are little light bulbs that go off, you know, particularly yeah. as a wind player, you can get very tense and forget to just relax and breathe. That's basically what we do with we blowers do. <laughs> and, you know, let it all go. And then if, if once the shoulders go down, then the hands relax and then you start really singing. And then it's just they get so wrapped up with technical exams and scales in fifths and fourths. And, and then they come to me and try and play a slow tune and you realise, mm, OK, uh, <laughs> back to basics. Shake it off, shake it exactly, off. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And so once they get rid of all of that and just tune in to you know, what it is that we do, which is very often playing unbelievably beautiful slow melodic tunes that you just see it they just go ah okay now I get it yes and it's that's what it's about but I mean it it happens to all of us I have to kind of keep myself in check you know go right hang on what did I just say to my guys last night right yeah this is just the same for me (laughs) daily basis you know absolutely wise words and um (laughs) you know we've taken this journey together just showing the power of music actually and once it hooks you It really, really does. Thank you all so much. Sue, Kate and Francis, it's been beautiful hearing your journeys, hearing those aha moments and also your wise words. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. Well, that's all today from LPO Offstage with me, Yolanda Brown. Thanks so much to Kate Oswin, Sue Burling and Francis Bucknell for sharing their experiences of finding their own meaning behind the music. Please get in touch using the hashtag OffstagePod. And thanks so much for listening. 